So part two of our series we started next week. I'm sure you are all um, eager to get uh, in on this, what is happening, end times. If you want to know more, you're interested. And last Sunday, hopefully I did whet your appetite. Still don't really know what that means, but um, hopefully I did that. And um, I'm going to just forewarn you, um, we're going to do a lot of work this morning. So if you need to stretch or limber up, take a couple of deep breaths, um, we're going to cover some ground today. Ideally, this would be like a four or eight week course that we would break, break up and just go through. Um, but I'm going to try and trudge through this this morning. Um, and hopefully it's super, super duper helpful for you. I will preface this by saying that, look, if you don't agree with um, some of the stuff that I have and the conclusions I have arrived at, that's okay. I give you full permission if you come to different conclusions on this issue to hold, hold those points of view um, as, as much as you like and we can agree to disagree because they're not the main, this isn't the main thing. These are sideline issues so we can, we can uh, happily disagree on the sideline but when it comes to the main game, we're going to fight together arm in arm about what, what Jesus is, what faith is but this issue, I believe, is, is a sideline issue. So last week we looked at building a healthy framework for um, interpreting and understanding the Bible with specific regard to end times theology. So looking at as many authors, many genres, many styles, many years between books being written. So how do we have a healthy um, hermeneutics or way of interpreting the scriptures? Because that is vital for us to fully understand a topic like end times. And I think we've got on the screen here, with a healthy biblical interpretive framework, we need not live in fear and speculation, but rather in hopeful optimism. And a lot of the times when it comes to end times stuff, it's, it's shrouded with fear, it's shrouded with speculation, and people get worried. And they ought not to be. And I think when we have a healthy understanding of the Bible, we know how to navigate it well, then we need not be living in fear or speculation, but we can live with hopeful optimism that it's going to be okay. Even though the times might get darker, even though persecution might increase, that we, if we are on Team Jesus, spoiler alert, we're going to win. And it's going to be okay, no matter what happens. And so uh, it's important that we look at that. So uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, we looked at, um, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a co-worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So we looked at correctly handling God's word. Uh, Luke 10.20, however, Jesus says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you or that you have authority over snakes and scorpions. Rather, rejoice that your name is written in eternity. Right? So, we must keep the main thing the main thing. We, we, we don't want to run around just being demon hunters and chasing things and signs and wonders and, and end time speculations. It's, no, no, no. Rather than all that sort of stuff, don't waste your energy rejoicing in those things. Rejoice in the main thing. Because the thing is, when peripheral things become primary things, our theology gets wobbly. Ten times out of ten. When we make things that are just not the main thing, the main thing, things start to get really wobbly and left unchecked over time become incredibly dangerous to you and those around you. So today we are going to dive much, much deeper into the events around the end times to see what the Bible um, teaches about it. As much as we're going to go into depth, this is not exhaustive. There is so much more we could say about this topic. Um, I'm just going to try and give you as much as possible today that hopefully you can digest. Um, but please know that it is not exhaustive. But I have done exhaustive research in order to be able to give it to us as distilled and concise as possible um, without the hard work of being here for like 10 hours. So 
you are welcome. Before we can do that, I think we should pray. Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you for every single person that is here. I thank you for this, um, this subject matter, that, that, um, that your spirit would flow through me. Uh, it would help us to understand what it is your word teaches about how this all will unfold and what will happen at the end of this age when you return. Lord, would you speak through me and to all of us here today in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most common um, and modern views on end times is what is known as dispensationalism. Uh, there it is on the board, big word, dispensationalism. Um, this is what has primarily been taught in the West for the last hundred or so years in regards to the theology around end times. Um, chances are, if you've been around church for any length of time, this is probably, or, or portions of this, is probably what you have been taught. And um, so I want to break down what essentially dispensationalism says how it originated, and then a few thoughts uh, that I have and have researched in regard to this. So let's look at it real quick. Um, what is it? What is dispensationalism? Well, here's what it means. Jesus will return secretly and rapture the church into heaven. So he will sort of sneak in and sort of, church, hey guys, let's get, up we go and vacuum us out of here. Uh, after this, it will trigger seven years of tribulation. During this time, the reign of the Antichrist will begin and the state of Israel will be persecuted. As the nations begin to make war on Jerusalem, Christ will return again. This time it will be visible and he will destroy them. Christ will then establish a literal 1,000 year reign on earth, which will be known as the millennium. Those who enter the millennium are Jews who were converted during the seven years of tribulation, plus a small number of converted Gentiles. The raptured believers who were taken by Jesus in his first secret return will inhabit the new Jerusalem, which will hover above the earth and be visible from the earth. It's very sci-fi, isn't it? The temple then will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and the priestly and sacrificial systems will be reinstated as the means by which God is worshipped. Somehow unbelievers make an appearance on the earth during this millennium. And these unbelievers are gathered by Satan at the end of this thousand years and Christ will defeat them a second time. Christ then moves to the new Jerusalem where his heavenly reign begins. Dispensationalists presuppose that God now has two covenant people. The Jews who are under the old covenant and the Christians who are under the new covenant. But he now has two covenant people he needs to interact with. And, and this is how it's, it's to be understood. So plan A, God's plan A was he would send Jesus as the prophesied Messiah to save the world. The Jews would accept him and he would rule and reign as Lord. But unexpectedly, the Jews rejected Jesus and crucified him instead. And God's like going, oh my gosh, what are you doing? All right, um, plan B. So then plan B was, I will resurrect Jesus and will establish the church. So then the church becomes the new covenant believers of God. And so God still has plan A with the Jews. It's unresolved because they rejected Jesus. But then he's got the Christians who are now regenerated because of Christ's resurrection as the new covenant believers. And so he's got these two um, sets of believers that he's working with. However, the church, God's plan B, um, is only a parenthesis, only a brackets of God's master grand plan. And for God to complete his original master plan, he must deal with this problem of having two covenant peoples, the Jews and the Christians. So dispensationalists suppose that God takes the church, Christians, 
out of the world via a secret rapture in order to go back to his original plan of restoring Christ as the earthly king in Jerusalem and making a covenant with his people, the Jews, so he can restore the political nation of Israel. This is what they say. And it will only be at the end of history where those two covenant people will be united together in the new Jerusalem. The Jews, the Christians together at the end of all this playing out. Okay. The origins, where did this come from? Because this stuff has only been taught in the last hundred or so years. You don't find this teaching throughout church history. So in 1828, a lady by the name of Margaret MacDonald had a charismatic vision in a prayer meeting of the church being raptured, being sucked away, taken out from this earth, right? Um, loosely probably based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So that's in 1820, oh sorry, 1830. Press pause there. She has this vision of the church being taken away. In 1828, a guy named John Nelson Darby, who was a, a, a well-respected Bible teacher, was part of the Anglican Church. He broke out of the Anglican Church, started his own movement, started his own denomination. He had these, um, these, these prophetic conferences that he would run. Um, but through all of his teachings and all of his conferences, he had this massive obsession with the nation of Israel being reinstated and restored as God's plan A. Like he was just like, you know, people are just obsessed with Israel and what's happening in political things. And so he was one of those guys. So he had this dilemma that we just looked at before of um, if God's grand plan is to restore Israel, what is he going to do with these two covenant peoples he now has? The old covenant Jews, the new covenant Christians, what's he going to do? And he, that was irreconcilable from him, for him from scripture until he heard of Margaret MacDonald's vision. And he's like, aha, that makes sense. God will then take the Christians out of the equation so he can fix this earth here, go back to his plan A, and then eventually restore them all together as one big happy family. Now, therefore, we can ascertain that the rapture theology was not formed from sound scriptural interpretation, but rather from the vision had by Margaret MacDonald in 1830. Right? So it's like a man thing. It's like, oh, we just, we just go with that. Darby then presented this idea in the following years through his prophetic conferences that he had through England and through Canada, and it began to spread. The idea was picked up by uh, Cyrus Schofield, who included this in the footnotes of the Bible translations he produced through Oxford University Press. Uh, so, so people started to read this in legit Bibles that were produced in the study notes. Deal Moody picked it up and included it in his publications through Moody Bible Institute. And then it caught fire in 1948 when Israel was reinstated as a political nation. And people thought that Darby's prophetic visions had finally come to pass and the end times were happening. And it was gone like wildfire. Like, oh my gosh, this is absolutely true. And then in the 80s and 90s, we know the Left Behind series sort of picked it up fictitiously and made books and movies about all of that. And then people took that as fact, not fiction, because the book was written based on Darby's preaching, uh, Moody's preaching, and going back essentially to Margaret um, MacDonald's vision that she'd had about the rapture. And so then the church just went gangbusters with this is what's going to happen. And so this become the prominent teaching around um, the church in regard to um, end times and, and the rapture and stuff. So here are some problems with dispensationalism. First of all, the Bible doesn't teach about a seven-year tribulation. It's not in there. This is speculation. 
Um, tribulation, when you read it in the New Testament, refers to the period of time from Pentecost to the second coming of Christ, which is known as the church era. When Jesus uh, ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes, fills the people, go into all the world, make disciples, and we do that until the return of Christ, whenever that might be. That period of time is the church age, which is commonly referred to as tribulation in the New Testament. So we could easily say then that tribulation means the present experience of Christians, right? And that would make sense to the church in 596 AD, 1751 AD. 1992, throughout church history, if we understood tribulation as the experience of the present experience of Christians, it makes sense throughout history. It's not simply applicable to those who are in the, the end times. It's helpful for all of us. So this idea that they had come from um, a, a poor interpretation of Daniel chapter 9, um, where it gives uh, a whole bunch of ideas about numbers and stuff like that. Um, see, the numbers and time signatures in Daniel chapter 9 are symbolic, like most of the numbers we read in Scripture. And so it describes the end days and the church age, but not as a literal seven years, but as that period of time of tribulation until Jesus' second coming. Nowhere in Revelation does it mention or assume the restoration of the political nation of Israel. So theologically speaking, the church, Christianity, is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel through the work of Jesus Christ. So, the church is now the new Israel. There is not two covenant peoples with God. Jesus fulfilled God's promise through his death, burial, resurrection, and, and now we are, find ourselves being the new Israel, God's new covenant people. That's according to what the Bible teaches. Uh, Revelation also does not include any reference to the rapture of the church. So we're going to get into that now. The rapture, the fun part. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, talks about the appearing or the coming of the Lord. Now, now this word in the Greek is the word perusia. I'm going to use some Greek words here, and it's not to impress you, it's just to prove a point. Because I, I don't like when preachers get up there and they go, here's the... The Greek, he was like, well, I, don't, I don't know Greek. I've never studied Greek. This is what I've studied from study notes of people that do know Greek. So this is second-hand information. It's not me being super smart. Um, but this word appearing or current coming that we see in Thessalonians 4 is the Greek word perusia, uh, perusia, which means a king or an emperor would come to visit the territories over which he would rule and, and the people would come out and meet him at the city gates and they would welcome him and usher him back in as he rules and reigns in that territory. That's what that actually means, which is the opposite of what dispensationalists believe. They believe that uh, God sucks the believers out, and that's it. But this phrase here in Thessalonians is, in a, as Jesus comes, as he, as he approaches, then the church draws near to him, only to then usher him back in for rule and reign. We don't just go. Um, then in verse 17, it talks about us being caught up in a cloud for a meeting with the Lord. This word meeting is the Greek word apantasis. Apantasis, yep, that'll do. Um, and it has a very similar meaning to uh, the words appearing and coming, um, which talks about uh, citizens meeting a dignitary to escort him back into the city. So Paul here, in 1, Corinthians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, fill in the blanks yourself because I can't speak. 
isn't talking about the rapture. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. And this is where, where we, we, we tend to make minor things major things. And the, the, minor, the major thing is not that we are meeting him in the cloud. The major thing is that he is returning and coming to us again. That's the major thing here. So it doesn't actually mean that we're going to be sucked up and taken away. It actually means that, that we're going to meet him and bring him back to establish his rule and reign once more as originally planned and designed. Other theology around this is Matthew chapter 24, another passage which is used um, uh, to, to teach about rapture, right? And we see Jesus himself teaching here and talks about, hey, there'll be two in a field, one will be taken, one will be left, right? And then we go, oh, I saw left behind. That's what happens. This is going to blow your mind. When you read this in context, Jesus is talking about as in the days of Noah. That's the context, right? Where the righteous people were, were drawn together and everybody else was taken away. Right? So Jesus, go and read this, Matthew 24. As in the days of Noah, where, where, where they, all the unrighteous people were taken away, as will be when I return again, there'll be two in a field, one will be taken, one will remain. We're the ones that remain. We're not the ones that are taken away. That, that blows the dispensationalist out of the water because that's not, we there is no literal rapture of us being taken away. We remain to, to live under the, the, the reign of Jesus Christ in his second coming when he restores and creates new Jerusalem. It's, it's those who are of this world that are actually taken away, just like the unrighteous were taken away in the flood and the righteous remained. So we have to read things in context. Having a healthy interpretive lens for Scripture keeps us balanced and, and gives us an understanding of how Scripture actually, and what it actually says. So Christ's return is visible and singular. It's not secret once, public once, as dispensationalists will believe. And when you read Matthew 24, Jesus is like, hey, the whole world's going to see when I come back. It's going to be like thunder, a lightning in, that happens in the east will be seen in the west. Uh, there'll be trumpets and angels. It'll be like a massive deal. It will not be secret. It'll be very, very public when Jesus comes back. Okay, so this brings me to the next view around end times theology, the idealist view. Now, I would probably camp here primarily, and you will see why in a moment. Um, so this is the idealist view. This interprets this view interprets the book of Revelation, Revelation primarily symbolically in light of Old Testament allusions or Old Testament references. And so it's, it's symbolic, um, because it has a, a massive amount of Old Testament references. Now, in the book of Revelation, there are 404 verses. How many, I won't get you to guess, but have a think about how many references to the Old Testament you think there would be in 404 verses. Maybe 20, maybe 30, I don't know. 500. There are more references to the Old Testament than verses in the book of Revelation. And 500 is more than the other 26 books of the New Testament combined in their references to the Old Testament. So we can see when we look grammatically and thematically at this book that there is a lot of references to the Old Testament which, which shows, okay, there's symbolism at play here as John is referring back to Old Testament prophecies and things like that that happened in the past. And we see from the very first verse 
two things specifically um, at the, in the very opening verse of Revelation that help us see that this book should be taken symbolically, not literally. Here's the first one. Uh, Revelation 1.8, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's stop right there. The book's about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus' second coming, right? Keeping the main thing, main thing. It's not about speculation about uh, beasts and horns and diadems and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Like that's secondary stuff. Primarily, this is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, which John's saying, revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show. This word show is the Greek diaknumi, which is, means a pictorial vision of which God interprets things symbolically, the things that must take place. So we could then reread that to say, God gave this revelation shown by pictorial visions to be interpreted symbolically. That's how we could probably rightfully interpret that particular phrase. The next part of this same verse uh, is Revelation 1, second half. He made it known by sending his angel to his son, to his son servant John. This word known is the word semeno, to symbolize or signify something symbolically. In other words, God communicated the vision symbolically to John by an angel. So we're seeing here, okay, right, so when I read Revelation, I don't have to be afraid of these beasts coming out of the sea that have got 10 heads and 12 horns and these beasts coming out of the land. These are symbolic and we need not hang our hat on the symbol. We hang our hat on the meaning of the symbol, what it represents. That's the most important thing. And that's what the whole point of symbolism is to prove a point bigger than what that symbol itself actually is. So if the book, if the book is primarily to be interpreted symbolically, we need to look at the symbolic nature of numbers. Now we're going to get bogged down a little bit here, but that's okay. That are used in the book of Revelation. So here's the, here are some of the key ones that are used. Okay. Four is symbolic of the earth. Seven is symbolic of God and completion. So when you read Revelation, you'll see that there are four sets of seven judgments, which represents God's complete judgment of the earth. Twelve is symbolic of government. We see that through the twelve tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, the twelve disciples that Jesus uh, put in the New Testament and gave them authority. A thousand is symbolic of an indefinitely large number or period of time. We see that in Second Peter, like one day is like a thousand years in God's presence. So it's symbolic of an indefinite uh, number or period of time. Therefore, 144,000 refers to the entire people of God throughout the ages. And we get this by the 12 tribes that God gave authority to in the Old Testament, multiplied by the 12, tribe, the 12 disciples, is 144, times by an indefinitely large number, equals all of God's people at all time. Right? So that's what the 144,000 means, is God's people throughout the ages. Old Testament, New Testament everything in between. Three, symbolic of divine wholeness. We get that through the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Six is symbolic of humanity. Man was created on the sixth day. And 666 is um, symbolic of the demonic trinity, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, who act in divine wholeness that has corrupted and controls humanity. There's a lot going on there. And this is what I say, like I'm trying to distill it down really small because there's a lot that we can unpack there. So if a lot of revelation is symbolic, why did God use symbols? Why would he just give us plain um, ways to interpret stuff? Well, this is how God 
reveals himself. And, and we see this is consistent through the Old Testament. The prophets, when they prophesy, they would prophesy symbolically. Jesus himself, most of his teachings were um, in parables, were stories to illustrate a point. Um, the prodigal son is not an actual story. There was no prodigal son. It's a, it's a symbol to represent um, forgiveness, repentance, grace, love, religion, all that sort of stuff. That's what we find in that story. It's symbolism to uh, another whole point. And so it's, it's, it's consistent through the scriptures. So in keeping with this theme of symbolism, right, symbolism, let's look at the mark of the beast. This will be fun. Um, so before we look at the mark of the beast, let's look at identifying who the beast is. So Revelation 12 describes two beasts, as I mentioned before. One that comes out of the sea, like 10 heads, 12 horns, like ugly, demonic, foul creature. Also describes another beast that comes out of the earth, out of the land. And so for the sake of time, and I could expand on that further, but I, I won't. What that means symbolically, really, is that the beast that comes out of the sea represents the empire of this world. And then the beast that comes out of the land represents the religious system of this world, all of which are governed by the devil. The, the, the number of this beast, it says, is 666, which is the counterfeit demonic trinity, the, the, the empire and the religion of this world all together that will corrupt and control humanity. That's the beast, the system of this world, um, orchestrated obviously by old hairy legs, the devil. Um, so therefore, the system of this world seeks to give people the mark of the beast it represents. This is figurative. Not literal. There is no literal, in my understanding, mark of the beast. Because um, like we looked at last week, why would God include a book of the Bible without relevance except to those living in the last day? Therefore, for 2,000 years, therefore for every bit of time before the COVID vax, every bit of time before anything else, that the whole book of Revelation was irrelevant until the end times kicked in. Like we, we, it doesn't, that's not correct hermeneutics. How can the passages of Scripture mean something different to us today than they did to those who they were originally written to? Revelation wasn't even written to us. It's written to the seven churches, right? And we just now have the benefit of looking at that symbolism to see what that means for us. So I, I personally believe that the mark is, is not a vax. I believe that the mark is not a microchip. I believe it's not a barcode. Remember that was big in the 80s and 90s, barcodes when they came in. I was like, oh, mark of the beast, 666. And um, now we all buy stuff every day and we scan our barcodes. And um, now there's QR codes. Maybe, that, maybe the Q stands for queen, which is a counterfeit of the king. And oh my gosh, there it is. We've cracked another code. Um, or, or credit cards was, was big. But, but when you step back and you look over time, you realize that these, these fads, these ideas come and they go and they're not consistent with church history. They're not consistent with what the Bible teaches. They're just speculation that we sort of jump on these bandwagons to whip ourselves into frenzy and oftentimes it's fear-mongering. Um, and, and the mark of the beast is symbolic. Just like um, the mark or the seal that we have as God's people. Because here's the thing, right? The mark, the, the beast is a counterfeit version. The devil is, is trying to masquerade himself as God and, and sell 
but he's not. He's a, he's a counterfeit, poor, B-grade version. Um, but you and I, as the people of God, are sealed by God. We have a mark that we are, belong to God, right? Can you show me your mark? Show me your seal. Show me the literal seal on your person, in your life, that identifies you as one of God's children. There isn't one. We know that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, absolutely. And that is by faith and trust and God's presence, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. That's our seal, our security that we belong to God and children of God. Likewise, the mark of the beast is not necessarily a literal thing, but it's a figurative thing to represent those who have subscribed themselves to the system of this world. They are marked as belonging to the beast who, who orchestrates how the, the system of this world works. So the mark of the seal of God is a spiritual branding, identify those that belong to the one true God. It signifies those who are loyal and faithful. Therefore, our loyalty and faithfulness to God is the mark or seal that we belong to him. So loyalty and faithfulness to the system of this world is the mark of the beast. We are loyal and faithful to go with whatever the world brings our way in, in, in direct opposition to what the Bible teaches, what God teaches us, then we are branded by that. Um, those who are, it says in, in Revelation 13, those who are marked by the beast can't buy or sell. This symbolizes social and economic ostracism or persecution. In other words, there'll be a price to pay if you choose not to conform to the system of this world and not compromise your loyalty and faithfulness to God. So if we, if we are going to be loyal to God and faithful to Him and not compromise, we can expect persecution. We can expect tribulation. We can expect ostracism. We can expect life to be difficult for us. And look around now, the whole woke culture, the whole cancel culture um, is, is evident that that is at play. And that's been throughout history. So as I bring this to a close, I want to go back to the beginning of Revelation to look at um, the seven churches that this book was written to. And if you read in the beginning, in, in chapter 2 and 3, you see these letters that were written to these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Now what, this is, this is kind of cool, and this sort of helps, I guess, bring a bit of clarity and understanding is when the book, when John's vision was written, right, which was chapter one and then from chapter four onwards, um, he wrote that and then sent that to the seven churches. But with each letter that he gets sent to them, he sent a specific letter to those churches. He sent his vision that he had with a personalized letter to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. And so when when his servants went out, they would, they would have two letters to the churches the vision of revelation of of Jesus and also a specific letter for them so when we draw and now each of those letters is different addressing different things and what can happen especially in dispensationalism is we can draw or extract a thought or an idea that was written to one of the churches that was specific to them and build a theology around it that doesn't apply to the other six churches because the other six churches didn't see the other letters were written to that church. And so what is consistent with those seven letters is this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every single church in their personalized letter got this phrase. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So in other words, we're seeing this thing from John to, to stay alert, stay aware, listen to what the Spirit is saying, lean in. I've given you a revelation of Jesus and how things are going to outwork. Let's listen to what the Spirit is saying. Let's stay faithful. Let's stay committed. Let's stay uh, uncompromising to God's plan and purpose. So the whole point of revelation and end times should not be speculation and fear-mongering, but rather it's a call for wisdom. It's a call for discernment to hear what the Spirit is saying. Our response should be that we recognize that the beast, the system of this world, empowered by Satan, will try to entice us to seek our own personal pleasures and pursuits, to draw us away from being loyal and faithful to Christ in His way. But our loyalty and faithfulness is what will mark us as God's people. So I guess my question to you as I close is, who are you marked by? Does does your life reflect a a faithfulness and commitment to Jesus? In which case you are sealed and marked by God. Or do you do whatever is happening in the world with no sense of allegiance to God and His way? Are you thrown around by every wind of doctrine? Do you not have that personal relationship with God this morning? And I want to just leave it there and challenge us when it comes to to the end of time and, and, and when Jesus comes back. It's going to be crazy. Uh, it's going to be interesting. But it's not something that the people of God should be afraid of. It's something we should eagerly wait. It's something that Jesus said, hey, prepare yourself for it. Be ready. Be ready for me to return. You don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to be. But in the meantime, let's just have a readiness that no matter what happens around us, no matter what external pressures, no matter what persecution or tribulation we might find ourselves under, we are called to faithfulness to God. We are called to a consistency and a dedication to Him and a loyalty to Him, despite the cost that it might be to us. And know that throughout history, there has been billions of brothers and sisters of the faith just like us who have suffered persecution and tribulation in the name of Jesus and their reward is great in heaven who chose to not go with the flow of the world and the system of this world and be marked by the beast in his way but be marked by God and go against the flow against the tide and operate in a completely different spirit and manner and those are the ones that will be saved those are the ones that God's coming back for those are the ones God's redeemed that is us We don't need to be afraid, but we have hopeful optimism because we are His. Let me pray. God, I'm exhausted. That's a a big message. Lord, I pray that in the the depth and, and the richness of that content that we would not lose sight of what it's all about. Your return for your bride. Lord, would you help us to keep the the main thing, the main thing, that we would not bring speculation, we would not bring fear, we would not bring um, secondary things into the realm of the primary God, that we would first and foremost, as, you, as your word says, and as you instruct, that we would rejoice 
that our names are written in heaven, that we would just keep that primary, Lord. We would just keep the fact that um, we only have what we have because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because the Holy Spirit being poured out for us. And Lord, we eagerly anticipate Your second return. We don't know exactly how it's going to look or how it's going to play out, but we just trust that You would keep us steadfast in that meantime, in this church age, in this 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 current experience of us as Christians, that we would remain loyal and faithful to you, thus being marked as your children. Would you bless us today in all that we do? And Lord, anyone here this morning that's wrestling with faith and maybe hasn't made a decision to cross that line of faith and trust you, Lord, I pray that today would be that day they would do that, that they would confess with their mouth, believe with their heart that Jesus is Lord and, and take have the seal of this world removed from them and they will be translated from darkness into light and then sealed as your children. And that would give them hope and security for today, tomorrow, and whatever comes in the future. Would you bless us today in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen.